There we go. There we go. Hi, everyone. How are you doing? Yes, I'm wearing a jacket. It's really cold in my office. I closed the window, but it's freezing in here. So uh, I'm going to keep this on for a little while. Hi, everyone. My name is Luke Thomas. This is episode 152 of my live chat. I hope you're doing well. Let's see. On today's agenda, I saw some questions about UFC 287 adjustments Izzy can make. Um, judging, some stuff like that, whatever's on your mind. It's your live chat in as much as it is mine. So without further ado, we'll go for about an hour. If you want to get in some of the free, uh, uh, well, we'll do an hour of free questions from the thread I put up yesterday. You guys filled it up. We'll go to that. And then if you have any paid things, you can put them in at the end. You don't have to, under no obligation, but if you'd like to, that'd be great. All right. Without further ado, let's get this party started, shall we? Let's Let's get this chat going, yeah? All right, there we have it. So let's pull up the window as we are, uh, oops, let's do it this way. Yeah, let's do it like that. There we are. All right. So we'll f get to these and then we'll just get going. Here we go. First one. Every, you know, hey, Luke, after, uh, excuse me. Some time ago, you believe that if Leon Edwards and Hamza Chimaev were to fight, Leon would have been beaten by Chimaev after, or, excuse me, after, well, put after comma, after Edwards' most recent performance, do you still believe that if they were to fight today, the outcome would be the same how do they match it with one another? I mean, it goes back to, whoops, one more time. It, it goes back to the same problem that we had before with, with Hamza. First of all, he may not even compete at welterweight anymore, which I'm sure you're aware of. The other problem here is I just don't have enough information. Before, I was more confident in some of Edwards's limitations. Following that third Kamaru fight, I am less convinced by that. You guys know I put up that, um, I did a whole breakdown on it. Um, I wish I could have gotten it up sooner, but if you saw like the things that had caused Edwards certainly trouble in the first fight, but even some in the second fight, he just cleaned a lot of that up. Now, a lot of that was specific to Kamaru and the way in which Kamaru exacts his offense. We talked about it. He has, he has like very good, what we call, or what I call our borrow from American football, good red zone offense. He eliminated a bunch of that. That was very specific to him, but in some of the takedown efforts as well, um, he showed a lot more poise and better defense. The thing that gets, I think, Leon in trouble, perhaps, is, again, some of the things he did were very Kamaru-specific, which is fine. I mean, that's the it's the guy you're fighting that, that you should have very specific, or I should say you should have very opponent-specific counters to that. But, um, you know, for example, there are times where he would show his back, right, create back exposure. And, it, you know, there were times when Leon, or excuse me, Kamaru tried to, like, whip around the back and wasn't able to get it. But in general, I just wonder about a guy like Hamzat who could take the back, not in a very jujitsu way, but like, you know, the half hook or, or, or a single hook and then ride it on top. Um, that would be a unique challenge relative to Kamaru. Kamaru doesn't exactly fight in the, or doesn't achieve those positions anyway as much or does the same with them or just he doesn't use all of the same series of positions or achieve them in the same kind of ways. And so one wonders there you would want to have a lot of respect for what Edwards has done, and I do. So I think you asked me before I thought Leon would be in trouble. I would still have some concern for him. But again, we don't even know if Hamzat's going to compete in this. We don't have enough Hamzat information. And while I do think some of the things that he showed in Kamaru would make his chances of getting uh, or losing that fight lessen, I still have some questions about, you know, overall, how do you deal with a guy with that kind of pressure and that kind of move to the back in between riding uh, kind of positional, not supremacy per se, but prefers a game that way. It's, it's a, it, 
yes, my my thought is that Edwards would do much better now. I still have some questions about it, but you know, you don't you don't want to you don't want to just look past Edwards that way. I think it'd be very foolish. All right, here we go. Luke, controversial judging decisions have been a recurring theme in a number of recent high-profile UFC fights. Has it always been like this, or has it gotten worse over time? Is it a string of isolated incidents or more of a systemic issue? How can judging an MMA be improved? And in your view, what are some of the most significant factors that have resulted in so many highly disputable scorecards as of late? So let's go over this piece by piece here. Has it always been like this, or has it gotten worse over time? I'm actually going to say it's gotten a little bit worse over time, and here's why. Number one... Um, I actually feel like you can get, obviously you can get very disputed decisions in three round fights, but I believe that the combination, I should say, I believe that adding in two more, so having five round fights, especially if all five are kind of close, I think adds to the level of, um, difficulty. Um, also there are fewer stoppages than there used to be like, you know, 20, 2007, 2008, obviously there were fewer UFC fights, but relatively speaking, that's another one. There were there were less fights. That's one. Um, two, I think adding two extra rounds adds a degree of difficulty both in getting the judging right, but also in how fans interpret that. Um, there are fewer stoppages than there used to be. Now, it's not a huge amount, uh, but there has been a decline. But I mean, to me, the biggest one is simply, you know, I don't know if this is what people want to hear or or what, but the biggest issue to me is that the judging criteria is not very clear. I know people have tried to make it clear, but when I say clear, I mean um, easily understood. It's not easily understood. There's a gap between what people think they know and what the reality is about how judging actually works. Um, and I don't think people realize that there is that gap. That's the other part too, right? Like there's a gap between them and that might be fine. Like you might say, oh, I realize that there is an athletic difference between me and another person, but until you, um, sorry, let me back that up a second. If you're standing next to like pick your favorite insane level athlete, Bo Jackson, you're going to know that there's a difference. But I think what a lot of people think is that judging fights is somewhat intuitive that they already know in other words they don't realize that they need to know more in order to judge effectively because if you actually talk to judges and and I, I am blessed to do that mostly off the record but they do hit me up time to time and then they walk you through their decisions and then you hear what people are saying they saw in a fight there's often a massive amount of incongruity who do you blame for that i blame the athletic commissions to a degree i blame you know, partly the promoters um, as well. But another big part of it is that there is no federal regulation. You would want some differences between the states, but also that there can be differences in how the judges interpret it. There's also judging latitude. There's just a lot of reasons why they look the way they do. So um, has it gotten worse over time? I actually think judging has gotten better over time, but the demands on judging have gotten much more significant, right? It's, it's There's more fights, there's more rounds, right? fighters can often be there's a little bit more parity between two fighters so that's why they go to decision more um i actually think it's gotten better but i think the gap between what people know and what the judges do and what people think the judge's job is and what that that gap has gotten significantly worse is it a string of isolated incidents or more of a systemic issue or aforementioned how can mma how can judging in mma be improved and in your view what are some of the most significant factors that have resulted in so many highly disputable scorecards of late again we'd have to go through them because i think the results are somewhat um different depending on state and everything else I, the answer is um 
How can judging an MMA be improved? This is something I've been saying for a long time. If you know me, you've heard this. I'll try to make it very, very brief in this the in the interest of not being overly repetitive. Um, the current system that they have, the 10-point must system, to me has been retrofitted and changed enough where I don't think it's a terrible system. Uh, but I am just deeply unconvinced that uh, for MMA purposes, um, if they were told they couldn't borrow from boxing's model or that wasn't, you know, front of mind would they have gone to that and then just repurposed it perhaps they would I, I tend to think not if you were starting from scratch today how would you build a scoring criteria um the the basic answer for me is that i've, I've tried to explain this to people if you've never sat cage side you just don't realize how different a fight looks that's one thing that folks don't understand two you have a scoring criteria where you can have uh, between Two judges, one could have 30-27 one way, one could have 30-27 another way, and that is still justifiable within the criteria. The criteria doesn't do a great job of differentiating between a good scorecard and an acceptable or even sometimes a bad scorecard because there is so much latitude. Commissions don't do a good enough job of either recruiting people or then rotating people through to get sufficient experience. That's another part. Like Remember, commissions work on a volunteer army, so they can only work with whoever goes in the door or who doesn't. That really limits the kind of talent that they have access to. Um, and the last thing I'd say is something you've heard me repeat often besides just the sort of experiential differences and the latitude that's provided judges the other part is that we just don't do enough experimentation with with new ideas i've made this point before either with contender series or when they go and regulate overseas the ufc has an opportunity for example they, this would be one entity that could do something about this there would be uh they'd have the ability to use different scoring criteria in different places now i realize they don't want to do that because that changes the uniformity such that it exists uh, over all of it but it's to me it's like how do you know what the best scoring criteria is until you've tried it people always say the same thing what if we had seven judges what if we had two more judges in the back that couldn't hear anything which by the way new jersey tried um years ago what if we did scoring as a whole what if we did x what if we did y and it's like well without proper experimentation around this how do you even know if these are good ideas they sound good in theory they seem intuitively great i get emails all the time lukethomasnews at gmail.com where people always tell me I've got this great idea. It's like, dude, without without the implementation of that idea, it, it, it you don't have no idea if it's a good idea. You have no idea how the community is going to take it, how it's going to be interpreted, what loopholes it might have, what problems it might have, what strengths you may have underestimated, what weaknesses you might have underestimated, whatever. You just simply don't know until you actually put that into place, which is why I'm really happy Colorado is going to allow one to use their rule set because the other problem previously was that commissions were only using one set. So any place that was regulated, you couldn't really do that. Now that's beginning, at least in small part, to change. So the, the answer for me is that, one, I think there needs to be a better job from the stakeholders reaching out to fans to explain how this – or in, in fighters, more importantly – how that works but also like this idea that we've got a great system and there's we should never really mess with it and this is the best version that exists i just don't buy that i just don't buy that we've reached peak innovation in judging and you know if you look at the nfl i've made this point a million times before if you look at the nfl they they tinker with rules all the time between seasons to make sure that they get the best kickoff rules the best you know, uh, wide receiver uh, pass interference rules or whatever, and people are still going to complain about them, but they at least make an effort at tinkering to slowly get to something better. We're just dealing with innovations that are uneven, that aren't in many ways evidentiary tested. There isn't a lot of testing going on. So you just get what you get. 
And um, it's got some value, but not much, or at least I don't know if this is optimum. I'm, I'm pretty skeptical that this is optimum value. All right. Luke, what do you think about the decline of kickboxing? Could it ever become that popular as during the golden K1 times in the past? You know, this is going to be a question far outside my purview, so I will give it, um, you know, just as someone who has watched various attempts at resurrecting or getting kickboxing, you know, to a place where it could be a prominent mainstay uh, in the United States and really other places. I can only speak for the United States um, because obviously it's a little bit more popular in Europe and certainly parts of um, East Asia. I really don't have a good answer for you. And it's something that I have found vexing as well because it's an incredibly exciting sport. Um, you know, the, res- the highlight reels on these things are insane, right? So you would imagine like you could you could build the virality around it. You could, it's, it's action oriented glory. I thought really attempted with the rules years ago anyway, to get something where they could, you know, purposefully move action in a forward direction. Like for example, some of their clinching rules and whatnot, they tried to find and nurture and develop a lot of American fighters. Um, they had the road to glory series. And in the end, it just didn't take, I just, part of it was at least on the American side, there weren't enough American fighters. You know, Dustin Jacoby tried to do something in glory, and, you know, he did okay. He certainly did okay. For an American, he did really well. I think Joe Schilling did really well uh, in glory, you know. Um, there's been some guys that have been able to do it, but there's just not enough of them. There's not a culture of it uh, here. There's not any really big stars that could, you know, uh, make a splash. There is a participatory level of, you know, kickboxing and MMA. Like if you go to an MMA gym, obviously kickboxing is a part of it. But as a separate enterprise for the American fan, they just didn't have a culture of it. They didn't have any names to attach themselves to. Uh, I think a lot of them felt like it was gimmicky, even though, you know, it predates MMA. Obviously, there are various versions of it predate MMA. Um, I think some fans have just been like, you know, it just seems like you're trying to take another language and make us learn it. And they just didn't feel like they wanted to. Um, in terms of the, its current state, I, I don't really have any informed commentary for you. to. There, there are better people to speak to about that. But I have seen multiple attempts at trying to get it going here. Even before I was, I mean, when I first started covering MMA, there was Chuck Norris's league. And I remember there, I remember this vividly, Chuck Norris's league. It was something like, uh, no tap outs, only knockouts. Like they were even taking a shot at what MMA was doing with incorporating obviously the ground at the time. And, you know, that didn't work either for them. It, 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 they just always seemed to be like the way it was presented here, that it always kind of felt like a, whether this is true or not, I'm just giving you the impression. It always felt like a unnecessary, uh, from the American perspective, they, I think they, a lot of Americans felt like it was a sport they didn't need to pay attention to, had no Americans anyway, and uh, seemed like a weird version of what MMA or whatever should, whatever that was supposed to be. They kind of saw it as like a a cheap version of it, which of course that's not really true, but it's not true at all. In fact, but that's kind of what you got. It, it was weird. All right, we're gonna talk about this more on MK tomorrow, but. Thoughts on Emmett versus Taporia fight. My thoughts are that Taporia should rightfully be favored odds-wise, but Emmett will be a sneaky underdog pick. I can see their wrestling canceling out, probably, 
and then Emmett counters and times to Fourier going all in all the time. Right. So this is perfect since I've been working on my Taporia um, breakdown a little bit. Love this fight. Love this fight. Love everything about Josh Emmett versus Ilya Taporia. It is a aggressive escalation in the difficulty, I would argue, of Ilya Taporia's opponents. I think that is fair. I mean, it's not like he's been fighting chumps. I don't mean that. But Josh Emmett was just in a interim title fight. And now he's taking on Ilya Taporia. Although Josh Emmett, how old is old Josh? Josh is, I think, what, 38 or 39? Something like that. How old is Josh Emmett? He is currently sitting at 38 years old. Actually, just turned 38 in March this month. So uh, it's a it's a dramatic escalation. Uh, Taporia is much younger. I think for that reason, he should be favored. I think he... Uh, doesn't have nearly as many miles on him at this point. Um, there's not as much tape on him as well. I think that matters. There's a fair amount of tape on Josh. Josh does have a Josh is a very dangerous threat to Taporia. I mean, here's the big thing that you have to look out of your Ilya. He just gets hit and he gets hit early. And um a lot of times it's from reaching. A lot of times it's from I won't say negligent offense, but not sorry negligent defense but just not like just not quite vigilant enough at certain points um and it often happens early in contests when guys are still oftentimes swinging big they're not tired right and he has to eat the full force of it you saw that in the jai herbert fight that was a big one it was a kick that he ate early and had to kind of fight his way back but then of course what does he do he chops jai herbert in half with his own power and you saw what he can do on the ground against bryce mitchell i mean strong aggressive uh technical so really, I think that um, Taporia can match Emmett's firepower. The, the the real question is not so much his chin, because if Josh Emmett lands one of his heaters on you, it doesn't really matter, right? You're going to, in all likelihood, you're going to wake up staring at the lights. It's a question of like what kind of choices and decisions does Taporia make to not put himself in harm's way? And then two, how does he, how does he balance energy resources with that as well? Also, does he take, which you've heard me complain about before, does he take anything from the Yair fight? Now, Yair finished that underneath from a submission that, you know, the opponent was already hurt. But does he try to hurt Emmett and then try to finish on the ground, try to take the back, right? Use more of that wrestling, use more of that jujitsu that I think is a big part of his game and is a big reason why he can win. You wouldn't necessarily expect him to win it on someone where you say the wrestling could cancel out. Fair enough, it could. I just wonder if you can hurt Emmett. Um, is that a thing that's going to be viable for you? The only part, you know, you go back to the Yair again. Yair took, if you go back and look at my breakdown, dude, Josh landed, I think, one or at least one, I think two really hard shots on Yair. And Yair just kind of took it. So Yair's chin is absurd. But part of the reason he was able to score so aggressively was because he was able to do it at range with kicks. We saw like the kicking was the most dominant thing that Yair had to do. It's not to say that Taporia can't kick. He, he does have some of that. But he's much more of a, you know, I'm going to box you in range. That makes him, that makes it dangerous. This is a, this is the UFC clearly telling, you know, Taporia, look, man, we think really highly of you, but you got a couple of things we've noticed along the way that could potentially hinder you. Let's give you a test at the right time, right? Our old Taporia is like 25, 26. We're going to give you a guy much older, longer in the tooth, probably on the downside of his career, but still very, very, very dangerous and dangerous in ways unique to some of your weaknesses let's see what you can do with it i love it i love it what a what a what a they're 
the fight calls upon Ilya to really work on some of the things that are not the best about his game. And the rest of the part of his game that's good is already good enough to beat, I think, Josh. Um, so that's really where it comes down to is defense. Uh, he has to look at Corey Sandhagen. Did we not just talk about this on morning combat? Corey Sandhagen's style. It, 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 in some ways, in terms of the switching and the movement and all that kind of stuff, it's very much the same. But before, he would kind of like almost pressure guys and walk into guys, and he walked into a lot of stuff. He walked into a lot of shots. He had to find out a bad episode. Of, not, not being rocked so much, but, you know, getting knocked off his feet or just taking a big punch or whatever. He had to constantly fight out of these, like, bad scenarios. He didn't change up his style, but he just became much more defensively minded. And so through that, he's gotten the best out of himself. I think Taporia has to go through something kind of similar to get where he needs to go. All right. Where the hell is this thing? Oops. Yeah. Okay, here we go. Luke. Sorry. Can you name a past UFC champion whom, upon them winning the belt, you figured would have a long title reign, say four plus defenses consecutively, but then they lost the belt after a single defense. If that mine was Figueredo looking back, it seems crazy, but I was confident he'd run that division for a while. Um, after a single defense, I'd have to look at who lost it after a single defense. Didn't think that when Forrest Griffin won it, um, that he would be holding it for a while. And that was true. I definitely thought Rashad would hold it longer and he didn't. Uh, I don't know if I thought four plus defenses, and then they lost it right after. No, there's not been many where I was like, oh, this guy's going to reign for a long time. And um, and then they got whooped up real quickly thereafter. Most of the ones that I'm like kind of surprised that they held it. You know, I'll say this. I, I, I don't want to take. He earned it. He deserves the praise. He might win a few title defenses. But I don't know if I would peg Jamal Hill as like a plus four consecutive title defense guy. In part because that division just has too much parity. Just wait. Light heavyweight has had parity for a while. Well, John Jones notwithstanding. But what I mean is you take him out of the equation. Everyone else is kind of, you know, not too far apart from one another, which is why there was, before he came along, a little bit of hot potato with that belt. Um, I never thought Shogun would reign for a long time either. Um trying to think of other weight classes where guys won it and then immediately gave it up. Yeah, no, it's been, I'll say this, not the immediate give up, but there have been definitely times like where I thought, okay, I don't even know who the hell could beat this guy. And then the way in which they lost and sometimes the timing of it definitely surprised me. Like for example, when BJ Penn beat, um Diego Sanchez I was just like dude there's just nobody who's gonna fucking beat this guy like it's just not gonna happen and then what she just realizes you know via their own errors maybe they move weight classes they get a little bit older whatever the division quickly catches up like a year or two in MMA is a massive massive amount of change and turnover and growth and here's this person went here and this person went here like the amount of change that happens inside divisions inside the sport best practices within just two years is extraordinary it's an extraordinary amount of time or a, or a change within a short amount of time i should say so it ends up being a lot of time in, in that sense i never thought he would lose like anytime soon and then you know it wasn't long after that he kind of did um I never thought, let's see, 
or the opposite. Like I was sure Anderson Silva, I knew he was dangerous. I knew he was good, but I thought he had way more ground liabilities than he did. Like I thought for sure Travis Luter was going to take him. And of course Luter got pretty close, but you know, in the end we all saw what happened. So um, I've definitely had situations where like in the moment of someone's dominance, you just can't imagine how they would ever lose. And then maybe not their next title defense, but that that loss comes much quicker than you think and then division just changes and so that moment of dominance on top man it's just like it's so fleeting it's it, it looks permanent there's nothing even close to permanent about it so i get asked this question a fair amount over under two and a half fights that we see patty the baddie get ko'd his striking defense is a real problem especially with the big hitters it really is a function of who he ends up fighting like, yeah, if he keeps climbing the ranks and they give him top 10, top seven guys, you know, I I would imagine, yeah, I would take the under um, on that. But if he ends up fighting guys who are good, but they're overmatched or he can make it a ground battle, yeah, I don't know, you know. So you have to kind of define the term for me, like who's he fighting in that two and a half fight stretch? You know, does Patty have um, defensive striking issues? Yeah, he does. He does. All right, let's do it this way. All right. All right, so Luke, in the event that both Volkanovski and Holloway win their next scheduled fights at Featherweight, do you think it's possible that the winner of Cejudo Aljo would be next for Volk at 145, assuming he beats Yair? Okay. I admit it initially sounds like a weird notion, but both Aljo and Cejudo have expressed a desire to move, move up to 145. And if Max were to beat Allen, there's really no clear-cut next contender at 145. That isn't in need of another one to two wins. Taporia still one more win away, even if he ends up beating Emmett. They could fast track. So they could fast track Taporia. Um, that, I mean, they might already be doing it by giving him Emmett. I thought they would have given him someone a little bit lower. They didn't. They gave him that. So first things first, that could happen. That's the first thing I'd say. Secondly, I think that... Uh, da, 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 da. They might do Volkanovski versus Cejudo if Cejudo goes in there and dominates. But the thing is, if Aljo goes, and I guess it depends on who Marab fights, because I'm like, not going to do Aljo Marab. Would Aljo just drop the title if he ends up beating him? I, I doubt that. Um, so I don't think they, they would do that. No, they might have Volk go back to 155 and fight Makachev again, honestly. Um I suppose they could do a fourth fight with Max. I doubt that that would be the case, but they could. But I just, the Cejudo one, I'd put a big maybe on. The Aljo one, no. Mm -mm. I think they'd probably send Alex back to 155 or, you know, fast track to Poria, to be honest with you. And you're like, what would they do with Max? I don't know. Make him go to 155? Like, something. Yeah, Luke, can I get your thoughts on Allen versus uh, or Holloway versus Allen? I think even if this is a diminished version of Holloway, this could be an extremely tough fight for Allen. Let me pull up if I can. I want to pull up their numbers. Hold Allen fight metric. All right, let me show this to you if I can. First time looking at these for me as well. So I'll blow these up. Here we go. Bop, bop. Bob, there you go. You can see it now. All right. Max is 23 and 7. Average fight time. Obviously, Max has been in much longer fights, so that's going to be longer. 
Max is going to have a three-inch height advantage. That probably matters. They say Allen has a one-inch reach. It's probably negligible. Max is orthodox southpaw, so you're going to have open stance. All right, Max, boy, look at that, 7.24. That's a very, very high amount of volume, even for a ranked fighter. By contrast, a much more conservative, a decent number, but a very conservative number, relatively speaking. Accuracy, Max is pretty good. Striking, he does tend to get hit a lot. That is a thing that we know. It hasn't really mattered. Last fight, notwithstanding up to this point, but you get it. Both guys have positive differentials. This is a very good number for Allen. He tends to not get hit very much and you know has very good striking defense. So that's interesting. He does tend to mix it up. He's good for a takedown every 15 minutes and then a little bit of extra. Uh, takedown defense is going to be pretty good in both directions. You you might see a takedown just as you did against Yair uh, from Max against Arnold. But to me, it's really going to be a function of these numbers right here. I think that is more what I am looking at. And so and when I think about this matchup and the way it might go, I'm really going to be paying attention mostly to um, – it's more to me about Max than it is about Arnold. Arnold, Arnold is careful, diligent doesn't make a lot of bad choices, doesn't have to fight out of a lot of bad spots, but has sort of like a more um, even-keeled, not aggressive offense. I mean, obviously, he was trying to put Dan Hooker away, but, you know, you get the idea. For me, it's a question of what does Max's durability look like, right? I mean, after all the stuff he's been in after that terrible fight, he has taken some time off, right? Because that was last, that was, what, UFC 276? Right, so we're coming up on a year since then, or something like that. So he's taking some time off, but I know he changed management groups. I know there's been a lot of sort of turmoil. Really, it's a big question about what Max looks like. To be honest with you, that's a huge one for me. But the other part too is if Max is putting enough volume in Arnold's face, such that Arnold is either getting hit or, to bare minimum, has to react to it without being able to launch subsequent offense. So, like, it's one thing if Max is jabbing with him and he's jabbing. And then coming over the top, that's great. But if he has to defend and cover and roll and retreat, um, or you know, or obviously it's landing, that just is going to he doesn't like he has very little room to play with in terms of offensive efficiency and output. He's already at a at a very, I won't say low, but a very moderate amount. If that gets disrupted even more, he's going to have a hard time landing anything meaningful so the 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 volume pressure circling game of max holloway and how he's able to put combinations and then a ton of stuff together it's a five-round contest on top of it that could be a major disruptor for max on the other hand if arnold is able to turn max keep it at kickboxing range um break any clinch attempts back max up trick him which he's fully capable of doing any of those things, at least in theory, I think that's different. Like, you have to make Max follow you, right? You, you saw what Volkanovsky did. You have to make him follow you. You have to turn him. You have to get him off of this. If that is in play, if he's doing 7.24 strikes per minute landing, he's just going to be a tough guy to beat. Make sure my door's locked. Yeah, he's just going to be a tough guy to beat. It really is what it comes down to. Unless... He's fully compromised, in which case, you know, who knows? All right. Luke, just curious. If you were to rank your top five in MMA to be based on pure skill and not based on recent accomplishments, who would your one to five be? You can choose to control for size or not. I understand on average smaller fighters 
are more skilled and would probably be more represented. So if you want to give larger fighters that are very skilled for their size a boost, go for it. All right. Rank your top five in MMA based on pure skill. Top five in MMA based on pure skill. You're going to put Volkanovski probably number one. Uh, Jones I'd put in there. Um, top five based on skill. You know, Islam's going to be in there. I mean, this is not that complicated, right? Because you're still just talking about pure skill, pure skill. I mean, there's some really skilled guys um, that are not as good of a fighter as other guys who are somewhat less skilled but have other f- talents that enable them to achieve. Um, let me think here. I would put Izzy on that list. Again, pure skill. Top five in MMA. I'm not picking guy. Um, because now you're picking across other weight classes and other organizations. I'm just gonna keep it to UFC. Um it's a tough one, man. That's a tough one. Ugh, that's a really tough one. Um, fuck, man. It's like Whitaker I put on that list. Honestly, Whitaker is like insanely talented. Um, you know, where does Aljo fit somewhere in that list? He probably would. It's a, well, we'll see how Cejudo looks. Um, yeah, something like that. Something like that. Uh, here we go. Jesus, this is a long-ass question. I'll try to get to the best of it if I can. All right. Uh, what adjustments do you see Izzy making his rematch against now champion Pereira? All right. He asks, I found his last performance flawed. He employed several tactics that were effective, but I found his overall strategy left him too passive, causing him to get pressured onto the fence easily. Yes. And taking a lot of damage there and in the clinch for no reward. As a fan, I'm, oops. As a fan, I'm afraid that the complaints about the entertainment of his title reign foreshadowed the technical challenges that he faced in his last fight, that being a lack of initiative in terms of committing to strikes beyond jabs and low kicks, okay, not going first. He does go first and standing his ground. Uh, Pereira is almost guaranteed to win exchanges where Izzy is cornered and leg kicks mean Izzy can't solely rely on movement to command the ring. Yes. I also think he stayed in the clinch way too long. Agreed. He writes he needs to pick when to stand his ground and provide substantive offense, building on reactions and feints using the variety of strikes he's shown in the past. Pereira has shown to be vulnerable to feints. Um, this means he would have to exchange to a very dangerous opponent, but unironically, this is less risky and more safe than trying to play in close quarters where Pereira has all the advantages. His last few opponents were either too technically adept or far too hesitant. Pereira is the perfect fighter to punish Izzy Ford. He's way too dangerous and smart. Right, so basically the thing that I go back to is you're right. I mean, if you're going to play the circle game, right, where you're going to be on the outside, the way that, that we've seen it out. So we had that two fights on the same night, two different sports last Saturday, right? Caleb Plant trying to do the outside game against David Benavidez. Corey Sandhagen doing a little bit more pressuring, obviously, but trying to stay outside of the danger, so to speak, of a guy like um, uh, Chito Vera and, you know, um, having to punish him from uh, there were, obviously there was times that he got close and he got takedowns, but 
on the feet for the large part having to punish in a way where um, he couldn't joust, obviously, with a guy like Chito Vera. So what is the difference? Like, how does that make, how does it make it work? If you're going to play that outside game, the way it works is that, one, you have to accumulate enough damage for the judges to notice, right? There has to be, it ha like, there has to be some kind of evidence of it visibly, right? Are they limping? Um, are they favoring a certain side because it hurts? Are they cut or whatever? Like, that's important. But the reality is they have to be disciplined. And what I mean by that is they have to discipline their opponent right? How do you do that? Well, if someone's pressuring you, many different ways you could do it. You could pump a jab in their face where every time they got close, pow, they're getting hit. So now they have to rethink how they're going to do that. Or um, if they pressure you, you have to take them down, right? Because now, fuck, if I get close enough, this dude's going to wrap up with me. It's going to be a problem. Or they're able to fool you and then move. But on the fooling and the moving over time, it's that's not enough. It's not enough to land and go. That is the majority of what you do. The majority of it is not standing in front of the fucking guy, right? You, that's a bad idea. But um, some time has to be spent there. And some time has to be uh, spent on individual small actions that force resets, force follows, land, and allow you to escape. You can't decide to throw a big bomb or a major takedown every time. So that's still a big part of it. But interspersed, simply the reality has to be that they have to be disciplined. The person who is pursuing they you your object your your job is not complete if that is not uh, if you haven't fully instituted that whatever way you want to do that with a jab with a front kick with all kinds of different stuff that you're doing unless they feel uh, unless they've been damaged and or unless they feel confused about how to close the distance and what's going to happen when they do you simply can't you can't win that way. Right, you just can't. Like over time, they will overpower you, and that's really what you saw in that fifth round. Um, so, what can Izzy do differently? Um, I would expect. I w I wonder a, a little bit about this. If you go to like, what's one commonality between the uh, Pereira fight and the Blahovich fight for Izzy? The big one was that he just could not get by on enough of the leg kicks, both to do what he wanted it to do, which is to like you know create movement or the ability to escape, force resets, all that stuff. But he was never really able to damage Pereira because he was able to check them constantly. Same with the Blahovich fight; he was able to Blahovich checked so much of it that Izzy had to go to a second order offense, which was closer to the hands, and he wasn't as comfortable with that. You know, a guy like Blahovich is very powerful. One small mistake, and that could be a big problem. Then, of course, he just got taken down, and that was the end of it. But it was the checking of the leg kicks that made a huge, huge, huge difference. Against uh, Pereira, not only does he get out of the way of leg kicks or check a lot of them, he checks them and then stays in position, right? Or he or is able to continue the pressure. Um, to me, I would like to see, uh, you know, this is totally my belief, but I thought a lot of his reactions is he's in the clinch were a little too defensive in the sense that sometimes he would offensively underhook and then wrap and then turn, but then not really go for anything. It's like, man, if you got the, if you got the body lock, or you can fire the body lock, or it's not that far away, you can transition to the body lock. Boy, that changes a lot, because now I can get to a side of Pereira. He has to punch across his body, which won't really do much. And, of course, the takedown's available from there. And the clinch is supposed to be an area that Pereira can dominate. I do think he's stronger there. But if you are initiating it, forcing to get to it, you're switching up to it, he's going to be following you there. 
um, at a bare minimum, you could threaten those positions and you could do a lot with it. I, I, I wonder to what extent, not just takedowns, but the body lock option might be a big one for him. The other ones, you just he's going to have to find a way. You saw it at the end of the first round, the right hand. The right hand for Izzy has been a consistent weapon for him against Pereira. He's landed it routinely in both kickboxing and MMA. And you're like, well, has he hurt him with it? He did hurt him with it. He did hurt him with it in the first round of the of the first MMA fight. And obviously, you saw it a lot in both of the first two fights that he had with him, much more so in the second one, even though he got slept. Um, so I actually feel like he's going to have to find a way to, uh, if the leg kicks are going to be checked constantly, he's going to have to be in boxing range, um, mixing up more of that with movement, with heavy fainting, but also you he's going to have to land on him, going to the body, wrapping up inside the clinch, aggressively seeking it. I mean, you can't run from the problem too much. You kind of have to run to it. And um, I feel like not just going for takedowns, but attacking the body and then the body lock itself uh, is a potential big opportunity. Oh, he says, I would also recommend Gabriel Vargas, how I would coach Adesanya Adesanya to victory against Pereira. It might have been the most interesting analysis of what Izzy could do next weekend. I've not seen that. I will take a look. I'm sure it gets much more kickboxing specific. Uh, good question. Good question. What do you make of John Jones's troubling and odd tweets recently? Do you believe that, that training for three years to become the heavyweight champion just to ultimately win in two minutes could somehow have a detrimental effect on his mindset given a lack of motivation in the past? So I only saw the ones, what was it, Sunday? Sunday, I think it was, because I was traveling. That's when I saw it. I only saw the ones from Sunday were just a series of just like weird statements. Um and I mean, listen, here's the thing, like <laughs> John's always been the, I, I, okay. So let's back up a step. I don't really have much contact with anyone in his inner circle these days. So I don't really know. Right. That's the first thing I'd say. Um, but if there is a broader context to John, which I have witnessed over and over and over again, it is what you already know to be true. Namely, um, I do think he trains more than he used to, but even with, even when he's in camp, I mean, guys. During the pandemic, which was, let's say, after his Dominic Reyes fight until whenever, he got arrested twice, right? Remember this? He got arrested once in Albuquerque for firing guns off. They found a bottle of Recuerdo, which was Jorge Masvidal's uh, booze in his car, and they arrested him. It's all on camera, right? And then eventually, uh, you know, worked out some deal to avoid any kind of serious prosecution or jail time and then he has the incident in las vegas where he headbutts the car you guys have all seen that there was the alleged domestic violence one with the 911 call this all happened when he was allegedly making these moves to heavyweight and that would actually match what you saw from him before all of the pandemic stuff like he was constantly getting into problems and yet still able to do enough to win um because he's enormously talented and you know, whatever else you want to say, the division's weak, whatever. Um, but like what the tweets that you saw, whatever the reason for that is, like, let's just say he's still doing the things that he had been doing. Like <laughs> it's just a, it's just a continuation of things, you know. The, so I, I want to be very clear. I don't wish problems on the guy. He's got kids. He's got a family. People are dependent upon him. He's a human being. He is deserving of 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 rights and respect as a basic level on that. Um, 
and I don't know what he does in his personal life to combat some of the demons that have really affected his career, but there doesn't, from the outside looking in, there does not appear to be a ton of effort on his part to fix whatever his internal problems are. And I've, I've said this a million times, <laughs> it doesn't matter what else you do. It doesn't matter where else you move. It doesn't matter who, it'd be like, oh, you got to surround yourself with winners. Yeah, that's true. It's better to have friends and people who are motivated and, you know, want the best for you and seek the best for themselves. Yes, that's true. It's better. But that ain't going to fix your fucking problems. And it doesn't matter how nice your family is. It doesn't matter how rich you are. None of that shit matters if you don't address the problem. All of those things are reasons for you to be able to better address your problems. They aren't by themselves the addressing of the problems. And if you don't do it, they're just going to keep happening and probably get worse over time uh, in many ways. You know, it ain't magic. Life is not magic. It's not, it, you can carry yourself to a new country. You can carry yourself into a new relationship. You can carry yourself into a new job, in a new city, in a new place with a new attitude, a new wardrobe, a new car, a new whatever, a new circle of friends, a new gym. All, all Everything can be new and it doesn't mean anything if you are carrying the unresolved problems with you. So, you know, I hope he's getting the right help that he needs. I hope that those were just some kind of aberrant thing that happened. I don't, you know, I, I don't know, but to me, um, it looks to me exactly the kind of thing that's been happening already, just a new version of it. And, um, that is a fucking problem. Everyone, when he was coming back, I, you know, I think there was one question from Mike Bond at the uh, media day for John about like, hey, what about happening in Vegas? But dude, like there's a bigger conversation to be had. like, yo, what the fuck happened during the pandemic, my guy? You know, like what the hell was that when you were shooting off guns in a, a abandoned downtown, not abandoned, but empty anyway, downtown Albuquerque. What the fuck is that? What is that? Like, I've never, I've never done that show of hands if you've ever gotten drunk and sat in your car and fired in a, in a municipal setting no less like dude that's serious if one of your friends said they did that you'd be like dude are you are i mean you need help bro like so you know the fact that that happened and then subsequent to that was the domestic violence or the alleged whatever happened there the domestic violence incident and then now you've got this it's like if you don't solve the problem they just it just keeps happening it just it just keeps going uh luke how far do you think mateusz gamrock can go at 155 his grappling is elite check but i feel that he can do much more damage on the ground also check giving a scrambling ability he could be lethal in finding back attacks his cardio seems to be insane his wrestling is superb his scrambling is next level his striking is good but it's not super damaging and it's not very consistent that's the problem for me and I agree. He spends a lot of time on control without finding enough ground and pound. It's, his game is very difficult to deal with. How dangerous is it, though? That, to me, is the issue. And I think you've got to be sufficiently both, uh, especially if you're grappling-based, as you move up the ranks. And to me, there's a little bit of an imbalance. Let me pull up his numbers if I can here. I'd love to see it. Teyush, camera. Let's see. Let's look at old Mateusz's numbers, shall we? All right, here we go. I'll pull them up and I'll show them to you here. Right there. 
Yeah, man, low. Strikes landed per minute, 3.03. That might be less than average for a ranked fighter. It's somewhere around that. Strikes absorbed, 3.0. So he has a negative differential. Yeah, just not enough. Takedown defense, obviously, lights out 90%, right? But, um, yeah, that's not enough. Takedown average, look at that. Five, four. He's good for five almost every 15 minutes. I mean, that's nuts, folks. That's crazy, crazy good. And he'll beat good fighters doing that. I don't know if he can become champion doing that, right? I think that's the issue. He's good. He's really, really good. Really good. All right. Luke, during Fazeev's last fight against Gaethje, I noticed that one of his cornermen was Sayat, who is his manager slash translator, okay? Not only was he in the corner, but he actually was giving him advice between rounds. Is this unusual for such a high-profile fighter to not be getting advice from a proper coach during fights for such a close fight having good advice between rounds? A lot of these guys have dudes in their teams who they train with who may or may not be like their number one trainer, but they're kind of in the room, they're experienced, they kind of know what's up, and they might feel comfortable speaking with them. Um, who knows? He, he, might, he might like the advice that this guy gives. He might like the, the, the way in which this guy gives advice. This guy might be a source of comfort for him. Could be any reason why he was in that corner beyond just like what kind of technical advice does he give? Uh, maybe he needs that guy to communicate with other people in his corner. I mean, who knows? There could be any number of reasons why that person is there. And also, I don't really believe that's the reason why he won or lost. You know, first of all, you can make a case that he won, number one. Uh, but okay, he didn't. Uh, but you know, I, I don't read too unless you've got no one in the corner who is capable of being like the leading role really understands the game plan, can motivate the athlete, unless that person has been substituted out, I typically don't mind when someone else is substituted, or I should say added in. Uh, as long as you haven't taken out the core group of people who need to, or the, even the core central person who needs to be there. Like, it would be very weird to have, you know, so like the three main guys when GSP was there was like Danaher, Faraz and Greg Jackson imagine someone was like hey he added another dude who's like his chauffeur who speaks French and GSP wanted him as long as that three are there I don't really give a shit you know like whatever just add the other guy um that's it uh Luke your review of John Wick 4 okay boys and girls I haven't seen it yet man I haven't seen shit up in this, this bitch I have seen nothing I haven't seen uh God, man, I haven't seen a thing. Um, I haven't seen the new Avatar. I've seen one episode of the new Mandalorian season. So I've seen that. It was good for what it was worth. I haven't seen the rest of them. Um, I've not seen John Wick. The new four. I've seen the first three. I've not seen the, the new one. Uh, what else is around? Oh, I haven't seen the new Creed. I haven't seen a fucking thing. Dude, it's so hard. Man, when you travel as much as I do... Like, i just been home since Sunday. I have to go back to the airport on Sunday. I get home on Wednesday. I might have to leave again the following Saturday. And then I go on vacation the week after that. And then it's just like on and on and on. I'm barely ever home. I'm barely, I'm home for like very limited stretches. It's been that way for the past while. And so I've got a kid who can't see R-rated movies, not even PG-13, kind of limits my free time to go. Um, plus, like, Today was a one of my off days. It's not really an off day. Tuesdays and for folks who may not know, Tuesdays and Thursdays are my off days. Um, they're not really off. I don't really get them off because I have to do this and I have to do research. Like Showtime asked me to do something for the Tank Davis Ryan Garcia fight. I worked on that up in like five minutes up until this. Um, so 
you know, I'm not, I, I, I know all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, but I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Like, I've, I can tell you this much. You know how many times I've seen Princess and the Frog in the last month? Like a hundred. I can tell you all about Tiana and her restaurant and her man catching beignets. I know all about that, but about John Wick, I will see it. I mean, I'm definitely gonna, but I just, with what time, man? With what time? Okay, that's a weird question, but I'll give it a shot. Luke, in terms of alpha badasses, okay, I don't really believe there is such a thing as an alpha badass, but all right, who would you rank pound for pound number one? Just to clarify, being an alpha badass would mean... <laughs> this is a silly question. Uh, let's see. <laughs> I'm just going to leave this question up because obviously they're trolling and it's fucking hilarious, so... That's great. All right. Very good. Uh, let's see. Look, the Brandon model of the red nicotine vape you use. Uh, Elf Bar would be the one that I typically use. Did you notice what the walkout song Cheeto chose for the UFC San Antonio event was? No. I want to say it was. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, here's a good question. I, I read about it. I didn't actually watch the interview, but I did read uh, the transcript. Did you see Valentina's interview with Ariel? And again, read the transcript. If so, what are your thoughts on her comments about her recent defeat? They seemed worrying to me. Yeah, didn't love him either. Complaining about Re uh, Jason Herzog. I didn't buy that at all. I thought Herzog's stand-up was, if not great, not utterly unreasonable. Um, and not the reason why she lost. I mean, dude, the reality is this, man. Like, she's 34. Right, she's been competing, competing in not just UFC, but competing a long time. Uh, she does tend to take very good care of herself. She could beat Grasso in a rematch. That's not in any way out of the out of the uh, ordinary. But she's come close a few times recently. Maya had some interesting moments. We saw Tyla Santos have some interesting moments, and sure enough, Grasso has some interesting moments. Uh, and then eventually, in winning, like there's so much tape on her. All of her little tendencies, all of her little tricks, everyone's going to pick up on them. Again, the spinning kick, getting out of the way, and then jumping on the back. I mean, they had that thing ready to go, and they did. It was incredible. Like, that's just so smart from Alexa Grasso and her team. Dude, like, when you're on top, you have kind of, you, not fully, but you've basically maxed out your skill set, basically. You're going to age out if even if you continue to win, and there is an enormous amount of tape on you. How do you win against that over time when the contenders all get fresh tries at you, right, in theory? You just can't. You just can't. And now she's complaining about the referee. Yeah, not a great sign. Not a great sign in my view. Um, would be very careful about picking against her, you know. But when they're starting to complain about the refs and stuff like that, it's like usually like for me, like, eh, unless it's egregious, which I did not think that it was. I'm usually like, yeah, it's not a great sign. Not a great sign. Someone's asking between Izzy and Alex, who do you think has a better chance of a successful transition to 205? So it's weird, right? Because I would actually say that one of the things that holds Izzy back from 205 is he'd be like really good if there was like a 195 pound weight class. But at 205, and he's gotten bigger every time I've seen him. I don't know if I'll get a chance to see him um, next week. I'm making attempts to. I don't know if it's going to work. But um, when I saw him at the New York fight in person, he clearly had he slowly, 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 slowly begun to add muscle. So I think some of those concerns are a little bit overblown. But what I would say is um, 
you know, I do think he's a little bit physically overmatched at 205. Not not all the way through, but there'll be enough of that where it's a problem, especially given some of his, you know, wrestling defensive issues. Again, good takedown defense along the fence, but against bigger guys like a Jan Blahovich in open space, they might be able to catch him. Uh, so Pereira is huge. And in that sense, I do think would transition in terms of matching his strength and everything against those guys much better. On the other hand, like, you know, just color me deeply skeptical about his wrestling, even against 205ers. Like, you know, Ankalaev's got his problem, but like, do I really believe Ankalaev would get him down inside of a round if he wanted to? Yes, I do. Like, I do. Um, same with Rakic, right? You know, I, I just don't think that that he's his takedown defense is going to hold up against those guys. So, they are different in certain ways. Izzy's got better takedown defense, but it's a little bit smaller. Um, Pereira's guy is, is much better suited physically, but I think is further behind in the development curve. So, you know, pick your favorite from there. I rewatched Izzy versus Alex's fight. Let me pull it up here. And it seemed that Izzy's leg was toast by the end of the first. Alex's calf kicks really did a number on him. I might be wrong, but can you talk about that a little bit if you notice the same thing? I did notice calf kicks having a problem, um, but I wouldn't say his leg was toast after the first. Again, he just really couldn't hurt or discipline Pereira with that and slow him down with that, which would make him more... Like, the, the, the leg kicks, you don't want to win on them by themselves, although you can in the way that which Izzy uses them. You want to use them to obviously set up other opportunities. And if that doesn't come, but you still have enough of those, you should be able to win. He couldn't get enough of those even to be meaningful enough in number, and it wouldn't set up the next thing very successfully. So that that was a sort of a double-edged sword there, two, two problems. Let's see. Okay, it's an interesting question. Believe it or not, I'm gonna get I'm gonna I'm gonna acknowledge it here Kat Zingano said that her breast implants were giving her health complications and she had them removed and noticed a sizable difference in how she was able to perform I've noticed a decline in some other fighters around the time that they got implants do you think there's much truth that implants might hinder female fighters performance well I don't know that we have a lot of data on that uh it's not something I've spent a great degree of time examining uh I'll say this um my understanding is that a lot of women these days or at least relative to how it used to be more women these days are electing to take some of their breast implants out there are some concerns if you have an older generation version of them that there could be some health impl implications some uh some of the membranes on the the, the device itself can leak over time which can cause health complications and so getting those removed might have a huge uh like array of health benefits as a consequence but just adding mass which is really what is happening there do I think that that meaningfully alters someone's career? I doubt it. I bet there's something more to the idea that if there is any connection between performance and augmentation, it's A, there's no evidence to conclude that there is, and B, should there be one, maybe it's because they're doing something else with their career and not focused. Like, I just don't know. Unless it made you change weight classes or something, I cannot, well, like, what would the difference be? Does it change the trajectory of your punching? Maybe. Does it change choices you make in grappling maybe like it has to alter who you are i think the issue for i, I, I don't know about zangano but certainly i know for uh other women the removal of them came with associated health benefits 
by virtue of what was happening inside their bodies from having it there, um, just adding them, like, what would that mean? Well, let's see. Well, that's a good question. Um, let's see. There was a fun Reddit thread a few months ago asking about the personality. There we go. Just, just adding shit on screen. There was a fun Reddit thread a few months ago about the personality of fighters in their native language. As you've said to BC before uh, about how a language can open up new worlds, can you share your perspective on Spanish-speaking fighters and what's missed from only hearing their English-translated interviews? For instance, some folks say that Brandon Moreno's post-fight speeches are amazing and Yoel Romero comes off as articulate and funny, not in a meme type way. Yes, Romero is funny, although I have a lot of trouble understanding his Spanish. He speaks a Cuban style of Spanish. Obviously, he's Cuban. He speaks a Cuban style of Spanish, and uh, this is just my gringo ear. So, this is not me lecturing anyone on how to speak Spanish. I'm not really in that, uh, you know, no one's asking me to do that. I'm just telling you, as a gringo, it's hard for me to hear. Um, I would say Caribbean kind of Spanish, like Dominican Republic is difficult for me. When they're on the coast of Colombia, it's difficult for me. When you get more inland, it's a lot easier for me to understand. Mexican Spanish is a little bit easier, actually a lot easier for me to understand. Um, Romero's is a little more, I have to like kind of, I have to like, you know, I have to do it, but he can be really, really funny. I one time asked him what his favorite, like, uh, what, what were we talking about? I, I asked him something about like his favorite, um, what were we, favorite indulgence and he went on some hilarious tirade about how he makes this uh ice cream sandwich that no one else makes so that was kind of interesting but the point I, uh, about here like i'm trying to think of any fighters where you pick up like a new version of themselves um i wish i spoke more portuguese because i would love to understand jose aldo better but um i mean just think of it this way right this is the point i always try to make which is if you're an American, like most people would know in general, but if you're an American, you definitely know, obviously, who Martin Luther King is, Martin Luther King Jr., and you've heard his speeches, like the I Have a Dream speech. I mean, imagine someone dubbing over that in like a really foreign language relative to English, like Japanese or Chinese or, you know, Pashto or, or you know, uh, pa uh, no, Urdu or something like that, right? And then and they just say the words that the other person is saying. It's not the same. Like you don't understand them. You don't understand their personality. You don't understand like where they're from. You don't. It's it, it, you know. You just or even just another English speaker. Just someone going. I have a dream that one day, all kid. You know, all people. Blah blah blah. It, you'd be like, this is not. You, yes, it's the same words, but it's not in any way the same person whatsoever. I'm trying to think of like who I've heard. You know, it's funny. Um, I understand Ilya Taporia much better as a person when he speaks Spanish relative to English. Actually, his English is pretty good. His Spanish is much better. And you can, you, he has, he doesn't have the same personality in English. He's got a much different personality in Spanish and you can hear it and you can see it and you can feel it. Um, it's got way more swag. It's got way more when he's talking about other fighters, venom, it's got way more, it's, it's loose, you know, he's not like that in English at all. Not, not nearly to the same degree. So, uh, go check out, he's done some interviews with some like big YouTubers in Spain. A couple, a couple of them have come up on my feed and I've seen it go and put, 
watch him just speak. You can you can tell the difference between Taporia as a, a like a you can see his physical demeanor change when he is able to lean in, and how how he does speaking Georgian, you know, or Russian, whatever he whatever he ends up speaking there. I don't know what other languages he speaks beyond that, but I know he spent a lot of time in Spain and he, he's almost a natural there. His Spain Spanish is very, very good. He has totally different demeanor in that language than he does in English. I mean, just too like, just think about it in yourself. Like it's not that you just sound different speaking another language. Like, are you able to sound like yourself? Like I don't sound like myself in Spanish. My Spanish is very functional. Like I need it to order. <laughs> I need it to, uh, get to a place. I need it to, you know, have a transaction or, you know, yeah. In, in more comfortable settings, I can let my hair down, but it's really what it's for. It's functional. Um, that's not me. I couldn't do this in Spanish, you know, not, not very well anyway. Uh, all right. It's four Oh eight. Let's see what you got on the paid side again. No obligation, no nothing, but if you got some, we'll take a look at it now. All right, let's see. Does Dana secretly like bad judging because it will encourage fighters to go for finishes instead of trying to coast to decision wins? I doubt that he likes it. I really, really doubt that he likes it. I doubt that that's something he's like, I'm so grateful for those. I think that he is done trying to solve the problem. I think that um, he doesn't care. I mean, I'm not going to say he doesn't care. I don't think he is quite as passionate about the issue as he once was. And so, yeah, like, is it a good thing for him? No, it's not a good thing for him. Favorite philosopher of all time, modern or ancient? Uh, I've talked about this a number of times. Whenever someone asks this question, favorite philosopher, you got to remember, like, philosophy is a wide-ranging subject. Both to this person's point, there is the ancient version and there's everything the well, Jesus Christ, I mean, virtually every century thereafter in various languages, you get something. But it can be in any number of different ways. It can be epistemological. It could be ontological. It could be there's continental versus analytic. There is, um, I mean, just there's the amount of different versions of and different things that they talk about and cover and try to understand are just wide ranging. But the one that I think I took the most through academic training for me personally the one that had the most lasting impact was David Hume. Um, David Hume was the one that initially got me to understand the nature of assumptions I was making. Um, obviously, some of the kind of reasoning I was doing. And, um, and how that dovetailed into philosophy of science. Philosophy of science is the one that I've spent the most amount of time, I think, engaged in. Oh, you know what? I have a good recommendation for you. Ah, yes. Give me one second. I'm going to pull this up for you, for you, Bamas. Hang on one second. One second. Here we go. All right, we're back. Uh, this is one of my favorite books. And I had a professor, I had a professor in college um, who taught philosophy of science. And I took, um, I took his 400 level classes and he wrote a book. Do I have it? No. What did I do with that other book? I have to reorganize all my fucking books. Um, 
Ah. I'll have to find it. He wrote a book arguing that, you know, a lot of times, for example, I like barefoot shoes, right? I have to wear barefoot shoes. And a lot of times you'll hear people say things like, oh, your feet were never designed to be mashed together in a small shoe. But if you actually believe in evolutionary science, then your feet were not designed at all. And in fact, a lot of times what folks talk about in evolutionary biology is a cloaked version of design, even if unintentionally. He wrote an entire book about this. Um, it was majorly influential in my thinking. But he recommended another book, which has, this is not as much a, if you look at a lot of the different battles that are happening now, a lot of it's just culture war bullshit between two different sides. But when I was younger, one of the more like lasting debates was about creation science, intelligent design science, and evolutionary biology. Some of that has fallen to the wayside by the year 2023. But in the 90s, this was a raging debate. Anyway, and prior to that, of course, as well. Anyway, Philip Kitcher's The Case Against Creationism, Abusing Science. This book has been fucking revelatory for me revelatory philip kitcher is an absolutely titan of 20th century philosophy of science i think he's done more than that he might have i'm not sure exactly if he's done any linguistics but um he recommended this book you can see all my notes and everything um chance adaptation and the interplay between them yeah look all all of my notes right um he wrote this book on pushing back on creationism and why it's not just from an evidentiary standpoint, a poor explanation for what happened, um, but the philosophical underpinnings of it as well and why it's actually the adoption of these ideas are actually dangerous for society and ultimately its understanding of the natural world. This book, Abusing Science, Philip Kitcher, The Case Against Creationism, couldn't recommend it more. Couldn't recommend it more. This is philosophy of science in a really helpful um, it's not too long. How many pages is this book? Yeah, not even 200 pages. You could read this in a week um, or less. So highly, 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 highly recommended. Anything Philip Kitcher has done, and in particular this one. Uh, if both retired right now, better career, Gaethje or Poirier? Poirier. Poirier beat Gaethje. Uh, Gaethje has was a World Series of Fighting champ. Never fought outside top ten bonus machine interim champ. Oh yes, right. Gaethje was interim champ too. I forget because he kind of took the thing off and didn't wear it. Um, Dustin, long USC resume, interim champ, beat Connor twice. TK Gaethje. Yeah, it would have to be Dustin for me. Remember, Dustin won the violence trifecta. He not only beat, he stopped. Ready? He beat and stopped Justin Chandler and Eddie Alvarez, dude. You fought and stopped all three of them? <laughs> okay. Like, that is that is amazing. Like, that's ridiculous. You know, that's ridiculous. And beat Connor twice. Uh, does Cheeto need to reform his fighting style to ever become champion? Or can he become champion with the right matchups? Well, he could become champion with the right matchups. But I do think there's a little more evolutionary growth that has to happen. Right? Getting started earlier. And then the other problem is... Um, creating openings, like making them happen, setting traps, getting to that earlier, I think would be not easy, not easy, but hugely beneficial. Um, and something he should, I think he could can and probably will do over time. Uh, thanks to Lee. Oh, Lee's got another one. Here we go. Thank you, Lee. Uh, which UFC champions benefited, benefited most 
from five round title fights and which UFC fighter would have been champion had title fights been three rounds thinking Chael versus Anderson there's a bunch dude Izzy would have been one Kamaru would have never lost his one um you're asking less from a style thing like how many like late round stoppages have there been yeah those two come to mind which UFC champions benefited most from five round title fights uh obviously you know he's not a champion but we talked about Chito Vera being the king of the five rounders um Title fight's been three. Yes, Chael would have been one for sure. No doubt about it. Um, I'm trying to think who else was like a real clear example of one. Um, kind of faded late. Nah. There's no one who's been like a really good champion who, oh, you know what? Marlon Mar- Marlon Marais. Like, when did he get stopped by when did he get stopped by i mean he would have lost eventually anyway but when did he get stopped by um henry when was that that was what round in the third ah the end of the third so maybe not quite marlin maybe not quite he was close he was close you could maybe consider him but in general yeah those guys I'm trying to think if there's anyone on the women's side. You know, not like Amanda suffers, but I think Amanda Nunez would have even more dominance if it was a three-round consideration versus five, right? There's been a couple times she's faded late. Um, maybe Jan, you know? He tends to sometimes get stronger, but not always. Do you think The Rock should replace Dana, being that he can also promote the hell out of mediocre products and inflate numbers to suit his... <laughs> Hustle. Yeah, the Rocks had a lot of bad press recently. The XFL ratings are trash. Um, he apparently, what did he do at DC that pissed everybody off? Um, oh, I think like um, he had Superman in his movie instead of Shazam, even though the studio wanted him to have Shazam because it was the more natural character to have with him. And he resisted it. And I think that's hurt the new Shazam. By the way, new movie with Shazam. Haven't seen it. Couldn't tell you shit about it. Um, is it. Is the Flash movie out yet? I haven't seen it. Um, yeah, no. People always talk about this and who it would replace. The most obvious person to replace Dana would be Daniel Cormier. Daniel Cormier would be the one who would replace him. You made your atheism quite clear. For my philosophy class, can you give a good counter-argument for the prime mover argument for God? Are we really doing this here? Just, J- Jake, I appreciate the... Um, I appreciate the uh, the donation. Just email me, Jake. Just email. You don't. You didn't. Have, I'll even send you the five back. Just email me if you're if you're a philosophy student and you want some participation. Just email me, LukeThomasNews at gmail.com. Sorry about that. I'll, I'll, I'll even give you your five back. Email me. Email me. Resources are resources. Are you aware for content creators not backed by a broadcaster to license fight footage for breakdown style videos without getting sued or taken down? Um, what resources are you aware of? The law? It's fair use. It's really as simple as that. There are fair use guidelines. There is nothing that is, um, or I should say very little that is determinative, like this is fair use, this is not. It's always within a range of, of different, um, considerations. But I believe that everything I do, I wouldn't do it if I didn't think it was in compliance. It's in, it's fully within fair use. All right. 
Uh, it always shocks me when elite fighters come from small local camps, Whitaker Holloway. How can they compete without access to elite training partners? Uh, well, first of all, I mean, let's back up a step here. Like Whitaker and Holloway, two enormously talented guys, but two guys who have also fallen short at their ultimate ambitions a little bit. Now, both of them were champions and very good ones. Um, but have been unable to regain the title since losing it. Uh, now, obviously, Holloway has relatively recently uh, uh, been closer to holding that title, but well, actually, no, he lost the first time around, so it's actually been a while. Never mind. But the point being is he hasn't fought anyone else uh, since he lost it, right? He's Oh, no, he fought Yair. Okay. The point being is um, I think that... A, like, look at the last fight, for example, that Holloway had. Like He was clearly overmatched and outgunned. And it just seems to me that, like, dude, those guys with him are unbelievable minds and trainers. But at some point, um, I think that there might be limits to training with some of the smaller camps over time just by virtue of, like, who's got the best practices, who's got the best resources, um, which large teams are sharing the best ideas. You're just getting a better laboratory that way. So I think you can and you will do really well with small teams, but I do wonder about the ability to maintain dominance once you actually get to the top when you stay with a small team. Um, there are exceptions to that rule, but I, I tend to think that's actually largely the way that it goes. I think that... Um, on the rise up, uh, they can be not merely beneficial, but actually better than a lot of other places. But once you're an established talent, um, you know you don't want to mess too much with the formula. But if you're not careful and you're very you know loyal to the people from where you came, that's great. And again, you shouldn't just jettison them all the way. I don't think that's the right idea either. But in the case of like Whitaker or Holloway, they've come to like roadblocks, and you know Whitaker's still trying to put together uh, an opportunity. So we'll see how that goes. But um, I do think that there begins to be a question over time about what that limited perspective can do as a more established talent. I'm sure they would say they could be just fine, but we shall see. What active or retired boxer had a system most directly applicable to MMA? Additionally, how can we develop a better fight IQ and understanding fights? Well, fight IQ is sort of defined as like your decision-making ability in fights. So like as a fan, I'm not sure what you mean by that. But what active or retired boxer had a system most directly applicable to MMA? I don't even know what that would fucking mean. Um, like Kermit Centron wrestled. Uh, I, I don't even know what it would mean for a guy to have a boxing system most applicable to MMA. Maybe many, like a prime Manny Pacquiao due to hand speed and ability to cut angles. You know, and then and then not just hand speed. He had hand speed, big power, threw in combinations that could fight at angles. That, maybe? You know, obviously you would say Floyd, but Floyd benefits from certain realities in boxing that don't exist in MMA. So somebody that's got firepower, somebody that can move, somebody that can change levels, change direction, quick. Yeah, like a Pacquiao, I think. Some of that might be better served in MMA. Someone says, you have to see John Wick 4, best action film ever. Well, that's saying a lot, folks. What are there? What's the you know? And I, listen, I know that Rotten Tomatoes is deeply flawed, but let me just see what it's getting. I don't take it as gospel, so don't worry. I'm not. Let's see. What do they have on that one? Here, let's do this. 
Oops, let me bring this back. There we go. Damn. Great scores. Holy shit. 94-94. Dude, what the fuck? That movie's three hours? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's no way I'm seeing that in the theater. There's no way. No chance. Not going to happen. I'll see it. Uh, don't get me wrong. I'm going to see it. But, you know, I don't have four hours if you count traveling there and then previews. I don't have four hours. I don't have four hours to give away. I don't have it. Do you still keep in touch with Mike Giappetta and Jeff Wagenheim? A little bit with Jeff Wagenheim. I haven't talked to Mike in a long time. If so, any any chance any of them would join UNBC on Morning Combat? No, probably not. Probably not. But I do like them a lot. Who are you choosing to win PFL Featherweight? It's got to be Movlid Habulayev, right? Got to be that dude. That dude's easy. Where do you stand on Pascal's wager? So let me just, again, we're doing this again. Uh, I don't really want to do any more of this. All right. Very briefly, Pascal's wager was what? That like, there may not be a God, but just in case you want to, uh, you know, you would want to obey the strictures of this God just in case that there is. But of course that doesn't solve the problem because um, just wrote you know, memorization of rehearsed lines in church or the act of genuflecting before a cross without the subsequent belief doesn't really do you any good. You actually have to buy into it, at which point it's just Christianity anyway. Um, so Pascal's wager is not that interesting to me. Anyway, I don't want to do these. Uh, okay. But didn't Jeremy run? He got run over by what? Like a thresher or something? Something terrible ran over him. Oh, the snowplow. Tended to save his nephew. I haven't followed the details of this, except I saw him trending on Twitter. But, yeah. Any chance of UBC, Ariel, New York, Rick, and GC? GC. Who's GC? Doing a fight companion for a big UFC event sometime this year. Uh, probably unlikely. Probably unlikely. What conspiracy theory do you buy into the most? I've told you guys this. The UFO stuff. The UFO stuff. Like... When you've got naval pilots on record being like, here's video of some shit I saw. I saw it in real time with my own eyes. You can watch the camera version of it. I don't know what that was, and we can't explain that with our understanding of modern physics. Yeah. I mean, that's less conspiracy theory because there's some evidence for it. But like this idea that like aliens are there or that they made contact with us. Again, I don't know if any of that stuff is true, but I'm much more amenable to the idea that that we've had some kind of contact with alien populations and it's not been uh, either widely publicized or actively hidden by the government. Sure. Sure. Not all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Yeah, this is nice. Listen, I appreciate the, the well or the listen, I'm not a militant atheist, right? Like if religiosity gets you through your day and you find social cohesion and happiness with it, I tend to just, my attitude is just to leave that alone. Um, but you're not going to convince me of any, I don't even think there is much, well, let me back up a step on that. Um, I don't derive a lot of value uh, in terms of seeking moral clarity by looking at the Abrahamic religions and asking what they have sought after. There are some things in each of them that are noble and or reasonable, but there's a lot of it, I think, is either uh, ignoble or unreasonable or outright monstrous and cruel. I don't, I don't have a lot of um, 
personal interest in any kind of moral framework defined by any of the Abrahamic religions. None of them. Uh, Calvin Harbaugh and Temple MMA out of Grand Rapids and Takeover Church sponsors the team. All right, I'll keep an eye out. Favorite WEC fights. Uh, Carlos Condit versus Hiromitsu Mura is a great one. A great one. Um, a lot of Carlos Condit's fights. Dude, if you've never seen Carlos Condit in the WEC, I mean, I don't know what you're doing with your... I'm not saying you have it. I'm just saying for anyone out there at all. Yeah, do I follow NHL at all? Yeah, I mean, Caps are what? Like eight points back from the wild card spot behind the Penguins for playoffs? Like they're not going to make it. You know, whatever. Um, WC fights. Yeah, Condit versus Hiramitsu Mura was just an amazing fight. Dude, Jamie Varner's fights in fucking WC are tremendous. Not the Kamal Shalarus fight. That fight sucked. But um, yeah, dude, just look up Jamie Varner's fights and look up Carlos Condit's fights. And again, the Hiramitsu Mura fight is A+. Okay, add one attribute to each of the next three fighters, which would make them all Hall of Fame caliber. All right. You say Izzy, Tito's ground and pound. Pereira, Tony Ferguson's guard. Nickel, GSP's jab. All right. Izzy, you said Tito's ground and pound. No, I would say um, Habib's takedowns. Pereira. Uh, I would say... Gamrot's takedown defense and scrambling ability. And then for Nickel, ooh, GSP's jab is good. That's a good one. Um, I'll stick with that one. I like that. That's a good one. I like that one a lot. Thank you, Steve. What if promotions started introducing kickboxing into these celebrity older fighter matches like Stevens versus Aldo? No. Dude, this goes back to this game bread thing. Like, I'm not hating on the game bread thing at all. Like, if that works and people are happy, well, I don't love the main event because of the brain issue but okay neither here nor there for just a second but the basic construct of boxing versus mma and then mma guys fighting each other in boxing i don't in principle mind it i just i know what believe it or not i tend to have some idea what mma fans like mma fans don't like boxing that much not that much a little bit here and there tyson fury yes they're definitely going to check out ryan garcia and tank davis fair enough but like, you know, are they watching Subriel Matias or are they watching, you know, whoever the fuck? Like, no, that's not, they don't, they don't care about that kind of thing. So like, I guess that there might be a case to be made that they would want to watch if there's a sufficient amount of star power, MMA guys fight other MMA guys or certainly the crossover. But I tend to think at the end of the day, you're just asking them to watch boxing. Like, they don't like boxing, not very much. So um, I'm just, I don't. I don't think it's a winning strategy. We'll, we shall see, though. We shall see. Luke, I might get a tattoo when I visit Japan. Can you take a quick look at Tokyo Three Tides and Studio Muscat? Yeah, sure. Let's try that. What's it called? If this is some kind of like gay porn site, I'm going to be better. But all right, let's see. No, it's not. All right. Okay, I'll put it up here. Let's take this down. Let's put this up. Let's see. Um, yeah, this is real basic. This is nice. Oh, Christ, I'm crutches. All right. Um, yeah, these are good. These are good. It's simple, clean. Uh, I wouldn't call it great, 
but definitely very good. It's hard to tell from these smaller pieces exactly. What was the name of the other one you mentioned? Hold on. What was the name of the other one you mentioned? The other one was Studio Muscat. Let's see. Let's see. Oh, yeah. Here we go. I'm going to pull this up here in just a second. Oh, Jesus. All right. Let's see. Gallery. There's different ones. Obviously, you have to pick which one you want. So let's randomly pick one. Let's pick Mizuki. Let's see what Mizuki does. Oh, yeah. Mizuki is talented. Let's see down here. Is this a cover? Oh, that's interesting. So, yeah, it's a very distinctive style. A little geometric, a little black and gray, a little sometimes portrait realist, a little bit. Let's see this one. Yeah, she's talented. Let's just, or whoever. Jesus. All right, well, enough of that. Yeah, they're reasonably talented. Enough to get a good tattoo. Mm -hmm. Me and my girlfriend will be in D.C. in a couple of weeks for a concert. Any recommendations on a good dinner spot or late night eat? Also, email me, Rico. Also, email me. LukeThomasNews at gmail.com because it entirely depends on where the concert is. Because you're going to want to eat nearby. And they could be Black Cat. It could be Anthem. Could be Constitution Hall. Could be 930. Could be anywhere. Email me. Email me. Uh, could Crawford or Spence defeat Floyd and Manny? Well, 147, probably not. You know, uh, I know that obviously, you know, junior, there is some overlap with the weight class, but really the reality is both guys are 147 or especially Spence. Spence is probably going to be a 154 because he's going to go up against Thurman if they don't make the Spence Crawford fight. Um, so I think Spence would be too big in their prime. Would a prime bud at junior welterweight beat a prime Floyd? You know, I'm skeptical, but I do think he'd beat Manny. Yeah, I think he'd beat Manny for sure. All right. I think that is it. Uh, thanks to Othello for hitting us on the ones and twos. Thanks to you guys for reaching out. If I told you to email me, email me, LukeThomasNews at gmail.com. I appreciate it. And um, yeah, that's it. That's it for me today. Thank you, guys. The podcast will be up tonight. We'll get the thumbnail changed, all that good stuff. So until then, thank you so much for watching, and uh, stay frosty.